Welcome to The Conversation, a podcast about technology, instructional design, and learning sciences. So this is a bonus episode where I got to talk to Ryan from the Faculty Center of Professional Excellence, or FCPE, at Adelphi University. Ryan was a graduate of the EdTech program. So Ryan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself first? Sure. So I'm Ryan. I work at the Faculty Center at Adelphi, and I am an instructional designer. I actually got my master's in educational technology at Adelphi, as well as an MFA in creative writing uh, as well at Adelphi. What's your job like? What do you do? Uh, It's always interesting for me to have to try and explain what I do, because normally an instructional designer is someone who works with faculty creating and designing learning environments. And I do do that. But My position at Adelphi, I'm a little bit of an educational technologist as well. So I do a lot of uh, technology support and development uh, and facilitation with faculty, which sometimes gets broken out depending on your institution. So I do a lot of that. I wind up working a lot on institutional level projects for the university. So I have a little bit of a hand in general education. I have a little bit of a hand in first year seminars and first year experiences. I've done some work with HR and public safety for training projects and stuff like that. I've done some co-curricular, extracurricular development for different professional schools at the university. An instructional designer can have a say in those kinds of areas, but I guess in like the most traditional sense, an instructional designer maybe wouldn't be doing those things or all of those things at every university they wind up working at. Yeah, that sounds like really broad and like a lot of different things combined. Yeah, I I will also say that I do do a lot of faculty development as well, which again, doesn't always necessarily fall into the realm of an instructional designer. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I do work with uh, new or early career faculty development. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm interested and it's not outside the realm of scope for an instructional designer to also be thinking about grant writing and research mm-hmm. with faculty as collaborators. But I guess if I have to like summarize, so right, like there's all these facets of an instructional designer, uh, at least that I wind up being with, the easiest and clearest way when I have to describe this to other people or lay people outside of the field in academia is I just tell them I am a collaborator with faculty in any capacity that they want me to be. So how does the process work? Just focusing on the faculty part, do they come to you with a question or how does it usually work? So uh, generally they'll come to me with a problem to start. That's usually what starts the the process. They'll start their their like inquiry or, or their conversation with me with usually a technology-oriented problem. And maybe this is the mythos or ethos that we've built up at the faculty center of us being able to troubleshoot and help with technology-related issues, kind of separate from an IT help desk kind of persona. But they'll come to us with a technology-related thing. And it's usually centered around their teaching, obviously. You know, they'll come in and say, oh, I want to my grade book isn't calculating correctly or my forums aren't doing X, Y, or Z. And it's usually technology oriented. And what I wind up using that as a stepping stone to start talking, talking about their teaching. And so I'll 
say, okay, well, yeah, I can help you with that discussion form, but let's, you know, take a step back and actually look at your discussion form prompts, let's say, and start talking more about the pedagogy and the, and the teaching aspect. And I use that initial, I need help and you can provide it for me encounter as a, a way to build a relationship with the faculty member and start talking more about their teaching and their, their strategies and, and all those components. I think when you took the instructional design course, it was an eight-week online course. Is that right? It was, yes. As now it's a 16 weeks. I realize that eight weeks is a lot of content to put into very little time. Right, and, yeah. Um, and I also changed up some assignments. But for the most part, I think the core idea is the same. And I was wondering, what do you remember of the course and what did you find useful, if anything? I remember basically the theories and like instructional design development processes that I wind up using for the most part in my everyday job. Mm -hmm. um, there were more that we went over in the class mm -hmm. uh, that I don't remember and I, I don't use. The ones I do remember I use almost every single day and they've really guided a lot of not just my work but just the way I approach solving problems in general. Do you remember what some of them were the useful ones? Okay so the ones I use on a daily basis are backwards design. Mm -hmm. I use that all the time is the basis of the majority of my instructional design component like course design work and assignment design but what I found to be the most useful mm -hmm. is honestly rapid prototyping. Hmm. I rapid prototype so many things. It is not worth me investing a lot of time if I can't get a proof of concept or figure out what my variables and my constants are and just be working through that. It's a very scientific method I use, but it's like, you know, homegrown scientific method. So like it's not clean. It's not precise. I'm, I don't have like a ledger with my notes on it. It's more of a, hmm, I want to be able to do this. I wonder if I can okay, I should be able to do it if I do this or if I make this change or something like that in my design. Do that, get some quick feedback, find out if it's viable, and then I'll start polishing it. So what is rapid prototyping? Can you give an example or something? So rapid prototyping is taking an idea and making a prototype very quickly and cheaply not worrying about longevity or the whole thing, like doing every function of what you're trying to accomplish, but just basically getting a proof of concept out that this thing will work or this thing is viable, kind of in a business terms, right? That minimal viable product kind of idea. Uh, and it's basically just a way for you to troubleshoot things really fast, as well as save yourself from hours of headache trying to make something work when a simple test of maybe individual components would have sufficed to tell you what would work and what wouldn't. So do you mean something that you would build into Moodle or do you mean something, I don't know if you can give us a concrete example. Let's say I'm designing a new course with a faculty member and I'm trying to get them to sign on to the idea of a new way of organizing their course. And they're not really buying it. And it's a new idea for me or something like that. But based on our conversations and looking at the syllabus and the way that they teach, I think that this way of organization might be the best way of presenting the material. And to get them 
more on board or to even just demonstrate to myself that this would be a viable way of presenting the content and stuff like that, I might map out and build out very roughly the organization of a, of one module or one week's worth of content. Uh, so I wouldn't be doing the full 15 or 16 weeks of content in this thing to demonstrate how effective it would be, but I'll use one sample module and I'll flesh that out to a degree you know, it's still open to changing, nothing's set in stone. That's a big part of the rapid prototyping is because I haven't spent much time on any component of it, I'm not married to any one idea, right? And this this even brings in my, you know, MFA and creative writing background of this idea of kill your darlings. Just because you spent time on something does not give it inherent value. And so you have to be willing to kill your darlings, right? Like, you know, give up on the things that you love or that you think are going to work just uh, when it's proven that they won't. And so rapid prototyping does help me with that. And so being able to demonstrate quickly, you know, in five minutes, I put together this module with the organization or with whatever I'm trying to demonstrate to show it off to the faculty member or stakeholder, whoever it may be. I think Kill Your Darlings might be the title of this podcast. Because, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's also a, it's certainly something hard to accept, but it's true for well, certainly true for writing, true for anything. And mm -hmm. I think it's a real skill to be able to step back and say, you know, I know I spent 30 hours on this, but it's not working and I really need to let it go. I think that is a really important skill to have, but not easy to follow through with. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. And, you know, it, it happens in every profession mm -hmm. that it's that, um, oh God, what is it? The time sunk? I want to say that's a... It's this time sunk cost fallacy. It's a fallacy, right? It is a fallacy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's the time sunk cost fallacy that, you know, us putting time in means that there is value here, but that's not always the case, uh, especially when we have to make a product or have some kind of situation that comes out of what we worked on that's, that's successful. And for that, that's teaching. Okay, so rapid prototyping. I think I do the same in terms of like I have a shell, Moodle shell, that's where I test out a bunch of, you know, visual styles and, and different ways of presenting things. So yeah, I think that's, uh, that's good that you brought that up. Uh, backwards design. So I'm glad you mentioned that as well. How do you use backwards design? Backwards design, just to kind of give an overview of what it is to start, backwards design is uh, starting with your objectives, your learning objectives. What do you want the learners or users, whoever your audience is, to acquire as the end of this experience, this learning experience, this training, whatever. And starting with that and then working backwards through, okay, how am I teaching this? You know, what is the material? What's the content that I'm using? What kinds of materials? Like, am I doing a PowerPoint? Am I doing a lecture? You know, identifying those ways that you're teaching and what material is that you're teaching, making sure it aligns with that. Mm -hmm. And then finally ending on your assessment, the way that you are testing or assessing them to demonstrate mastery of that. And that assessment should be an authentic assessment or form of assessment that actually demonstrates the mastery and not some token lip service to the idea of understanding or something like that. So that's, that's basically in a nutshell what backwards design is there's a lot of different kinds of like 
worksheets and forms and, and different kinds of applications, different softwares that you can buy that supposedly help you with this kind of work. But honestly, you don't really need those. It, it might be good if you're doing larger scale things, like if you're trying to align entire curriculums, but like for the level of an instructional designer working with a single faculty member or on a single course or something like that, generally you can just have that written down and stuff like that. At the faculty center, is there a particular instructional model or approach that they prefer to use, or do you just come with what you have and they don't really have a particular one in mind? There's your personal way of thinking about instructional design models and, and the way that you do your work, and then there's the institutional or workplace culture of right. how we do this work. Because there are a lot of models and a lot of theories. There are hundreds of them. Yeah. And I assume they'll be different for different faculty centers anyway. But I'm curious, yeah. was there something that you felt like there was kind of a philosophy that you had to follow? Or did you feel like ready? Oh, uh, no, no. I don't think anyone ever feels ready when it's your first time stepping into that role and everything like that. Thankfully, I've had very good mentors that have helped me grow as an instructional designer and I had people I could talk to about that. I would say that like between what I learned and then what I was kind of what I was modeled when I got into the workforce and I started, you know, actually doing the work. Backwards design is not something that anyone else in my department really uses. That's something I brought in. I was already going to start using backwards design, but that is a part of my workplace culture mm -hmm. in our department. So like we'll be in staff meetings talking about the workshops that we're going to be running or the cohesion of the workshop series that we'll be running. We'll get onto these like 45, 50 minute tangents of us getting into the real nitty gritty components of it. Mm -hmm. And one of us will stop and just be like, okay, wait, wait, we're getting lost in the grass here. Let's step back. What are our objectives? What do we want people to walk away with at the end of this workshop or training or whatever we're running? Okay, let's start there. We're not on path for that by this idea. This idea is good, but it's not what we're hoping for our faculty or whoever to get out of it. So let's readjust. So like the backwards design is a part of that workplace culture. Mm -hmm. It's not so much a like an instructional design theory as much as like a learning science theory, but we're, we use Bloom's taxonomy a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen the posters. Yeah, you've seen mm -hmm. the posters around our office and stuff like that. I actually designed some of those posters. Oh, nice. Yeah, getting into the graphic design and side of things. We have been shifting or thinking about shifting. We're kind of having an internal conversation about switching over to Fink's taxonomy rather than Bloom's. Or mm. at least exploring that idea. Think S I N K, right? Uh, F I N K S. Oh, F. Finks. Yeah, Fink. Huh. Okay. Yeah, and Fink's taxonomy. It's a little bit more of a holistic way of thinking about learning objectives. Uh -huh. So Bloom's taxonomy is very hierarchical, right? It's yeah. like uh, you start down here at the bottom and you work your way up. Whereas Fink's taxonomy takes more of the human and empathy and emotional understanding of, of material into consideration. It's a fascinating topic, and we're, we're looking at it more because we are interested in maybe breaking out of that idea that, like, well, this is a 100-level class, and so you can never create, right, in this class. Like, all we're going to be doing is identifying and defining and all those levels of, of understanding. And I do inherently reject that as an idea 
because again, I am a writer as well. I, I, you know, my MFA is in creative writing. I couldn't have learned how to write if I didn't write. So the idea that like I needed to do all these lower levels before I got to the top level of creation, before I got to write a story, like that's not how you do that study. That's not how you do that work. So like my own educational experience kind of put me at odds at, with Bloom's taxonomy. Though I do find it useful, it's a useful way to think about things in a way. I think the tendency to represent Bloom's taxonomy as a triangle, I do that in a video of mine, I borrowed it from someone else, tends to imply that it's more rigid than it actually should be. But for me, the triangle also perhaps represent the amount of time that the course should be spent on doing different things and perhaps you can't spend all your time creating without also doing the other stuff. These are all important. Right, right. I, yeah, I, I don't know where that triangle or pyramid shape really came from. I've seen other models of Bloom's taxonomy presented that are not in that design. I've seen a light bulb. I've seen, yeah, I use the light bulb. That's what I found and I've propagated within our department. But I didn't do that necessarily because it went against that pyramid design it was more of an engaging way to present the material i think that that's just something that we have to think about or and be wary of when we present any content though is the way that we present something to be you know more interesting or more engaging or something like that may in fact affect how we read it because even with that light bulb design it's still listed vertically with creation at the top and understanding right. or or identifying at the bottom which still inherently makes me read it in a specific way. Looking back now, was there anything you thought was missing from the course that you would have included or you would have wanted me to include? This actually recently came up. So I participated in a mentoring program run out of Penn State and uh, Educause called ID to ID. And it was about seven months, eight months Long, I was paired up with a mentor from another university, another instructional designer from another university, and we went through a number of professional development projects together. And at the end, we had kind of a little mini capstone project that we needed to work on. So I worked on this project actually at my job. My mentor was like, find something that will be meaningful to your work. Don't worry about me. So I got to kind of create this project. And what I wound up doing was working with a faculty member on more of a unit level design as opposed to a full course design. So what I wind, what I see wind up happening a lot at this level of instructional design, at, and by this level I mean like working at a university or mm -hmm. something like that, is I kind of toggle between macro level instructional design and micro level instructional design. And by macro... I mean, I'm doing course design, so I'm thinking holistically about the full 15 weeks or the, the full run of the course and how we design everything there. And then I'm thinking about the micro, which is the assignments and stuff like that. And so I'm toggling between that, and that's what all the time I really have in any one instructional design project to focus on. And what this project allowed me to do, which was very interesting, working with my mentor and this other faculty member, was work on this like kind of forgotten middle child of instructional design, which is the unit level, where I really got to dig deep in with this faculty member 
on how they teach a specific week of content from start to finish. And so we used a different model than I've ever used before. It was um, Gagne's Nine Events of Instruction. So Gagne's Nine Events, it's from like the 80s or early 90s, I want to say. But basically Gagne, he identified these nine events. And again, I believe they're presented in order, though I have some qualms with the ordering. But he pointed out these nine events that students need to go through for instruction to happen. And that if any one of these events breaks down or isn't successful, learning is impacted. Mm-hmm. And so the very first thing on Gagne's events of uh, nine events of instruction is get this student's attention, which I think we often take for granted as teachers or educators, instructors, whatever the term may be. We take for granted that our learners are engaged and they, we have their attention. But in reality, if we don't have their attention, then they're not going to pay attention. No teaching, no learning can happen if they're not paying attention to the teaching that's happening, right? And so it was a really fascinating thing. It allowed me as the instructional designer and the faculty member who teaches this course to really dig deep and reflect on her teaching practice not just like the online or digital component of it, but actually her, like, what does she do in the classroom? How does it define attention? As in like, do you walk in with a magic show? I'm assuming, I'm assuming it's not that kind of thing. And like, I was wondering, because so, like, I think that is right. probably true. I was just curious. Right, right, yeah. Uh, you're right. Like, you don't want to be gimmicky, right? But like, gain their attention would be things like you open up the class with an image that grabs their attention about the topic. Hmm. So as an example, for this particular course, this was a social work course that teaches diagnostic assessment for social workers. So it's it's pretty heavy on the DSM-5, the diagnostic manual that social workers and psychologists use to diagnose mental illness. It also deals specifically in this component where we were doing this work on the biological components of mental illness. So we're talking about like neurons, synapses, all, all that like stuff that goes on chemically and biologically in mental illness, which for a social worker can be tough because that's pretty heavy biochemical component that maybe they're not used to working in. So this is why we were focusing on it was that the students were always struggling with it. So something that we identified that she could do was she found an interesting artistic rendering from actually the festival Burning Man Hmm. of a neuron out in the middle of the desert. And she used that as the opening slide to like grab the student's attention that, you know, on this blown up scale in the middle of the desert, there is this neuron sculpture that, and this thing is massive. It's like 50, 60 feet tall. It's visually striking. So something like that, You could also ask a probing question to get their attention to start getting them thinking about the material. So we also talked about her opening her course with putting them in a scenario and thinking about it. You know, your patient comes in and asks you, how will this medication affect my personality? Hmm. What do you say? And there's a lot of avenues that you can take with that, but it's getting them to start thinking about what we're about to talk about, right? They don't know the answer to this question just yet. But if they were plopped down because they don't know the answer, what would they say about it? And this is on the unit level? You can do this at every level, but I found it particularly useful at the unit level. I've always had to filter 
between this macro and micro level of instructional design, I very rarely in my work get to talk about what are you doing in your class? How does that connect with your presentation? What kind of extra materials do you wind up giving your students? Okay, now let's talk about your assessments. You know, what kind of study opportunities are you giving your students? Like that's all a part of Gagne's work that in a normal instructional design project, at least at Adelphi, I have 18 weeks to do a course design, which mm-hmm. seems like a lot of time, no, it's but not. it's really not. <laughs> yeah. It's really not. You yeah. know, you've done the course design work and you've been given that schedule. I feel like there's someone called GAGNY. Maybe I'm misremembering because I, you know, I always look at these models and I'm wondering because I can't teach all of them, like what are the ones that are good to teach? So it's always good to see what's out there. And actually what you were talking about, like opening, uh, getting their attention sounded a little bit like Pogo, which is something that I was introduced to through the teaching fellows that someone was using, Mm -hmm. which you could start with a question, like a very um, engaging question or a very captivating question. And even the learning by design or the um, backwards design book kind of talked about what are the things that interest people. And usually people like things that are weird, that are mysterious, you know, kind of things like that, that Mm -hmm. really grabs their attention. So it kind of makes sense to me. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, like, the more you learn about the different models, the more you realize they're all very, very similar They might have a slightly different order of operations. They might have different names for each other, but they all are essentially getting you to do the same kinds of tasks. When I was first introduced to, what is it, design thinking, Mm -hmm. I'll be honest, I was very frustrated, actually, when I read it. I was frustrated because I thought it was a ripoff of other things I already knew. Mm -hmm. I looked at it and I said, well, that's just the Addy model, a needs assessment, and mm-hmm. rapid prototyping. Those aren't <laughs> new ideas. Yeah, I mean, I think I almost feel like these are, like you said, like it's almost like um, you can create a graphic organizer out of them and then map your curriculum out or because they, they tend to differ in what they emphasize and maybe mm-hmm. they have different verbs to describe the activities students should be doing. But for the most part, there isn't one that is completely different than the other ones. It also makes it easier, like if you end up working in a place where they use a different model, that it's not completely alien. Right. Yeah. I I was uh, when I was working in a corporate job, doing project management and some instructional design there. I wound up having to interact and deal a lot with a programming development team, and so I was introduced to the Scrum model. And I'm actually a big fan of the way that the Scrum model works. I I see why it's very useful in like a coding environment, but there's components of my work that I wish I would use a scrum model for. Do you get to pick how you want to approach it? Well, for the most part, depends on the project. So like for course design projects, I'm handed a course and me, a subject matter expert, I'm told like, okay, we have to take this 15 week course that's taught in a traditional setting and turn it into an online or a hybrid. Thankfully, I helped develop it. I, you know, we have a rubric, we have a timeline that we use to keep us organized and on track with all of those things. I feel lucky because I got to have a hand in designing it so it doesn't feel totally like foreign as opposed to being handed something and say, do your work according to this manual. But pretty much all my other projects, like the institutional level ones or the ones I wind up cultivating with other people, 
those I really have full reign to do anything. And that, I feel rather lucky that I have a lot of autonomy in my work to kind of get to do that. I've talked to a few other instructional designers at other institutions across America and stuff, and they all kind of vary in terms of the level of autonomy they get to work on projects. You know, some instructional design or in teaching and learning centers are real, like, I don't want to use the word kind of like chop shop, but they're kind of chop shops for course design where like all they do is courses come in and they leave in a different modality and that's really all they do and then there's others that don't touch course design at all i'm pretty sure vanderbilt does not vanderbilt's teaching and learning center doesn't do any course design actually there were things you wanted to talk about as well so why don't we get to some of those the one i really wanted to talk about was designing for posterity i get asked a lot by different departments or different groups at the university to come in and help them design and put together one thing or another. Oftentimes, I'll be sitting down to talk or, or work with people who they've never done this before. They've never designed a learning experience or whatever this new thing is before. And granted, I, I haven't learned, I, you know, I haven't designed whatever they're looking to to do before, but I've done designing projects for other stuff. And so oftentimes my kickoff meetings with them, while it's for them to explain a little bit more about the project, about what they're hoping to do, oftentimes what I wind up asking them about is more operation-based questions. So as an example, I worked with the College of Arts and Sciences to put together a adjunct resource site on Moodle. It would serve as a repository and form of orientation for adjunct faculty in the College of Arts and Sciences that would take them through everything from how to get their parking pass and when they'll get paid all the way through technology introduction and application in their pedagogy. So we have a gamut of things that they need to cover in here. And I totally want to get on board. I'm a big supporter of supporting our contingent faculty, both in professional development, but also in a more like structural operations-based way of supporting them. So, you know, giving them answers to things like, hey, where do I get my parking pass and when do I get paid are questions that I think should be articulated clearly. And this is a course for adjuncts, you mean, like an orientation almost. Yeah, but they always will have access even after their first semester of teaching because it has relevant information that they can reference. So I'm sitting down with them and they're explaining what they want and I'm, I'm giving them feedback on the things I've worked on that we can recycle or utilize here as well. But the main thing I'm asking them about is this is great. We can make things and things can work this semester, but I'm not interested in just this semester. I'm interested in five years from now how is this still running? And maybe that's not always applicable, but at an institution, at a, at a university, more often than not, that things that you're designing are supposed to be used in perpetuity going forward, right? Like, like you, you design a course and it's going to run for the next three years the way it's designed. And maybe it'll get tweaks or something like that. But until like a program revamp comes up or they need to be reaccredited and so they redesign their course or something like that, realistically, you shouldn't have to go back in that often. And that includes the facilitation and the operationalizing of how that work gets done. So this really comes up not so much on like course design, but really on my institution, institutional level projects 
where I'm asking them like really operation-based kinds of questions about like who's administrating this, who winds up running it, what's your workflow, how are you getting these people into this course, or how do you get your users into the learning environment, how do you know that they've succeeded, who's going to be grading these people, like stuff that like people come in with an idea and they get excited about the prospects of it, but they don't think about some of the more nitty gritty operation based kinds of questions. You want to do a training and you want to do it on Moodle. That's great. Who's actually going to be monitoring because you're giving them a 16 week period to complete the training who's monitoring every week who's done it or who hasn't and who's providing that feedback like that's the kind of stuff that i wind up having to talk to them about which is sometimes surprising but you'd be surprised at how many times people come in and have not thought about those questions yet that's going into instructional design, not just at a university. That's like, you're going to get that if you're doing instructional design in any field you go to. And that's really where I first got it is when I was working in a corporate setting doing training design for a company, my clients would come in, they would ask me to build something and I would have to tell them like, okay, yeah, like we can build it this way, but like, who's going to be checking the inputs from the employees to like the system is not going to be designed in such a way, it can't be designed in such a way that there's no oversight to it. Like if a student is submitting something and expecting evaluation or feedback, there needs to be someone on the other end to look at it and give the evaluation, right? Yeah, you need to think about that feedback and where's that feedback coming from. The thing I've learned is that students won't learn if they feel like they're just checking boxes. And so if... There's no feedback if the tasks aren't authentic to the kind of work they're going to be doing. If the students don't buy into the idea that what you're preaching is going to actually help them, then it's just another hoop for them to jump through. And then they're going to phone it in or they're going to cheat or they're going to check out. I want to build something in such a way that it will work. I shouldn't have to come back and do this again to this thing in a higher promotion, the person who's taken my job is the person who's going to have to come back and, and deal with this. Like, I want to build to that level. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And I think maybe what's different from you working in higher education and something a K-12 teacher might be facing is that you're often designing something that someone else has to teach, whereas a teacher might be designing for herself or himself to teach. And so they can implement it and they know the parameters but if you're giving it to someone else to teach, then you do need to be aware of that. And the person you're designing for needs to be aware of that as well. Oh, yeah. I think a lot about the design that I'm suggesting working towards. It's totally dependent on who I know is on the other end of it. But it's also dependent a lot on who I know is going to be the one facilitating it. The things I design that I implement are vastly different in my approach than, say, someone who's a first-time teacher in an online environment. You also had a question about accessibility and design. That's something that's relatively new in my department that we've kind of taken up and started championing more. This idea that good teaching is inclusive teaching. And so trying to start designing 
our learning experiences to be more inclusive and accessible. And I want to just take a moment to talk a little bit about the word inclusive, because I think to different people, inclusive means different things. And we've run up against this a couple of times in our trainings and our faculty and even just talking amongst ourselves. When people hear the word inclusive, they are thinking a very specific kind of inclusive. But when we're talking about inclusivity in education, we're talking about making people feel comfortable to express and learn in that environment. It means doing things like thinking about more atypical neurological students. It's about thinking about the backgrounds or the perspectives of different kinds of students and knowing a little bit about the age range of your class and their socioeconomic backgrounds, like all of those can help inform your inclusivity in your class, right? So to some people, inclusivity means decolonializing the readings from their syllabus. And that's a great first step, right? So getting, you know, looking at your reading and say, wow, these are all a bunch of old white people and making a conscious effort to diversify your readings. Then there's a step further, which you get into with UDL, Universal Design Learning, which I know you are very aware of and you institute into all of your courses and, and design work of thinking about, okay, let's talk about accessibility. Am I giving my students accessible readings that are supported with screen readers, right? Are my videos captioned? which isn't just for those who are hard of hit it, hearing, right? Like I listen to all my videos with, with captions or I watch all of my videos with captions because I, even though I'm not deaf or anything like that, I actually find it super useful to understand things. But even our students who are ESL, English is a sing, second language, benefit greatly. And so going up beyond just the, the bare minimum of quote-unquote accommodations and getting to a higher level of inclusivity. And so we're trying to now design our courses with that in mind, thinking more about who those learners are and, and are we doing everything we can to bring them into the fold? Are we getting rid of barriers to their learning and making everything more equitable? Because here's the, here's the kicker. Everyone benefits from you making your course more accessible, even the people who don't necessarily need it. There's plenty of studies that show that students' comprehension of videos increases regardless of whether or not they need the captions, if their captions are there. It was actually explained to me really well by, no surprise, a social work faculty member recently, the idea of ramps on sidewalks as an accessibility and equity situation. The ramps on sidewalks are there to allow people in wheelchairs to get onto the sidewalk and off, uh, off of the street, right? And they're there as an accessibility thing. But think about all the other people who benefit, who aren't necessarily entitled or require on a day-to-day -day basis that, but who benefit. All of a sudden, skateboarders can get off of the street. Parents with a carriage or a stroller, right, benefit from it. People who uh, are wheeling in furniture when they're moving, right, can now use it. Like, there's all of these other people in society who benefit from the accessibility that we've built into the infrastructure. 
that aren't necessarily the intended audience for that accessible tool. So that's what I'm talking about. Like when we talk about like equity isn't something or like accessibility, inclusivity isn't something we're doing to just help one individual or, or, you know, a specific class of people. It winds up helping everyone in the course or the environment. Right. And I've also found it important to keep that in front of your mind and not as an afterthought, not as something you add at the end, but as something you go into the design uh, in mind. Yeah. Yeah. I've been working for a while, some start, stops and starts with this on getting a, a real captioning initiative going at the university because for a while it still is really, there's kind of a, a lack of direction and oversight of captioning for instructional video. And so I'm trying to really like bring that, operationalize it, but also fund it so that our videos, not everything, but if the instructor wants something captioned, we should be able to provide the captioning for it and have it ready in, a, in an expedient manner. You know, anything the instructor recorded that they have the copyright to. Are you making progress towards this? Are you getting the support you need? I've partnered with the Student Access Office. They're the natural allies of this, and I am working on finding a patron in the provost office to help sponsor. So this gets into kind of like the institutional level kind of work that instructional designers can sometimes get themselves involved with is, you know, when you're looking at something like facilitating an accessibility update, like captions for the university, it comes from a bunch of different perspectives. So there's an accessibility component but that's only half of it. There's a student success component, which is where I'm hoping to get the provost office involved. And then there's the instructional side, which is what I'm representing. It's a good, I mean, it's a group effort. Yeah, it's a group effort. And that's where like finding the funds for it wind up coming in is like, realistically, if we're talking about student success, then it should be a university level initiative and it shouldn't come from any one office. It should be directed from the top down, but wind up, a lot of times you wind up getting these grassroots movements and then you appeal up. So let's circle back to the instructional design class because there was a question about the final project. Do you remember what you did? So I believe I worked with a faculty member from the School of Education on a writing project. Uh-huh. She was investigating different tools to use in her fieldwork course to help facilitate their weekly reflections and writing assignments. So this would be the learning module, right? This is where you work with someone, you find out what they need, and then you right, yeah. help design something that gets them there. Yeah, that's what I did. Okay, great. So how did you get started? How did this process start? To get started, I sat with the faculty member and we talked through what were the goals of what she was hoping to accomplish with the different technologies. So I had to understand the assignment for her students before I could start working backwards a little bit, right? And then from there, we took stock of all the different tools that we had available to us for her to facilitate this writing. So we identified... Okay, she can use Google Docs. She could have normal Microsoft Word and they could upload and she could do tracking changes and send it back. They could use Turnitin. Like we, we identified all the tools at our disposal for us to facilitate this writing work. 
And then we did like some kind of pros and cons about not just the teaching implementation, but also the facilitation on her side of like, what does each tool really help her facilitate? And is any one of them easier or harder, not just for that time, but to carry over to the next time that she taught the course? Because I didn't want to design something that would be great for this semester, but she would have to build from scratch again the next time she taught the course. Like to me, that's a bad design. Like you shouldn't have to, you know, start from square one every time you do something. And so from there, we, you know, worked our way through all those things and having those conversations and... I, I wound up doing rapid prototyping with her to just put stuff together to see if it was viable. And then we finished out with implementing one. And then we actually got interesting results because we identified we wound up using Turnitin because Turnitin has a pretty robust feedback studio. It doesn't get really utilized as much. It's really utilized more for its originality report functionality, but it's actually pretty decent at putting comments onto documents and what we wound up finding was that it was failing but not because of the tool but because she was being too lenient with the students and that there was a little bit of a culture shock because they had been doing it one way and then halfway through the semester she switched over to this to test it but the students she hadn't like prepped the students well enough and so the students couldn't figure it out and they wound up using the old way and she just accepted it And then they just kept on like pushing back on it. And so this was a valuable experience for me. It was a valuable experience for her, which is if you're going to make changes, think about the timing of when you make those changes because students get kind of set in their ways in the course and they have expectations. And if you disrupt those expectations, they probably won't take it too well. Yeah. It happened once when I was, I switched from a discussion forum to voice thread in the middle of the semester. Yep. And um, yeah, I got some complaints. Yeah, yeah. I've had uh, faculty who come to me in like week six of the semester and say, hey, I want to do more active learning in my classroom. I say, this is great. I'm so glad that you're excited about this. You should do this in the next semester because at this point, if you try and institute something now, you're going to get a lot of students who won't engage and will actually become more resentful. So if if they're going to do anything, I give them something like really small. We come up with something smaller for them to do. But if someone comes in and it's like week six or seven and they say, I want to start using polling in my classroom. I'm like, yeah, you could do that like maybe as a once off in a low stakes like review kind of way. But like if you're going to switch your entire course over to that and it's the middle of the semester, you're going to have a bad time. And so are your students. One, you don't know the technology. There's a facilitation kind of ramp up that you'll have to go through to feel comfortable with this. And the students are going to feel it on the other side, too. So I think the last question I have is, how did you feel taking it as an eight-week course? Because you cover the same amount of material, but it's more compressed, so it's double the amount of time. So I had found that it was problematic. And so I was wondering how that experience was for you. Yeah, I think that that was probably my, my one thing is I was on a track and I knew what I was going for. I wanted to be an instructional designer. So I was taking the program and this is the course on instructional design and it was only eight weeks and it was a lot, but it was only eight weeks. And so I felt like, oh man, this was like the titular thing for my field that I want to go into. And I feel like it's it's over in a blink of an eye. 
and you know i got a lot out of it and i you know i use the things i learned and that i found value in every day i work but i think moving it over to a 15 or 16 week course is probably the the right way to go yeah that's what i felt like it was just a lot of things to fit into eight weeks and and just you can double the readings but that doesn't really isn't really how it works you know yeah yeah well i think that like moving into 15 weeks there were a lot of weeks in the eight week version where we would all be assigned different things and then present out to the course Right, like a, like a virtual jigsaw kind of thing. Yeah. And so what wound up happening was that like I knew my thing really well, but I only had a middling understanding of everything else. Right. I don't have that assignment anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, it, it was rather intimidating, I, w- I will say. When you go on to VoiceThread for one of those assignments where like we all had different like instructional design theories and models... Yeah. We were like in groups of two or three or something like that. And there were like nine models. Right. Uh, and, and then there's like 64 slides. <laughs> there's like 64 slides. And there was like a four hour presentation. And I was like, oh my God, I don't, I sat down to like do this, but I only allocated myself like an hour, but there's four hours of content here. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always <laughs> tricky with this class because there are so many different th- theories. I think we can start the conversation talking early about the different models. And yeah. Sometimes I feel like, oh, maybe they should know about this. But then, you know, I don't think that is that beneficial just to keep going through the models. Maybe for like a psychology course, that would make some sense. But in this case, I think it wouldn't really work out. Well, like there there are some good models in there. I think everyone's going to find a different thing that resonates with them. There were some that were very like Addy model adjacent that I found unuseful because Addy just seemed to be so much more succinct. And to the point, and maybe mm-hmm. it was because it was the first one I learned that I compared everything else to it. Well, you know, I think that's it. I think that's all the question I have. All right. Well, it's been great talking with you, and uh, I hope your students get a lot out of this. Well, thank you again, Ryan. This is great, and um, appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you.